calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Hello, Keegan. Hello, Madigan. Happy 2022 to you. Happy 22 to you, too. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Happy 2022 to you, too. Wow. Let's never say that again. (laughs) I know. So we just got back from um, a break. We took... uh, like a week and a half off, basically. So sorry to you listeners uh, that you haven't had a new episode from us in a little bit, but we needed a little bit of a holiday break. And we were on kind of like opposite holiday schedules, too. Yeah. Where you went out of town and then I went out of town. We like literally crossed each other, I think, right? Were you coming into Vegas the day that I was like leaving that area? I went into Vegas on the day after Christmas. Okay. So we left the day after Christmas. Okay, yeah. So we you were there already a whole day, but I was like, as we were driving like past the strip and everything, I was like, hi, Keegan. Yeah, and they're like, there she is, staying at the MGM. What's up? Oh, that's where you were? I was wondering which hotel you were at. Um, yeah. I've, I'd actually never driven through Vegas at night. I've only ever been there uh, during the day. And then I've been to like the city of Vegas where I've stayed multiple nights, but we didn't go to the strip. I was just in like the suburban living area you know that's where I grew up the suburbs of Las Vegas there they are actually I was I was really enjoying all of the lights on the houses there was some like really beautiful little like communities tucked away in Vegas I mean I'm gonna be honest I love Las Vegas I don't really love going so much we do like Vegas Christmas with friends which is what I was there for and it's it's fine, but as someone who doesn't like to gamble very much, yeah. Because like I was going to ask you what you do, because for me, I'm not a big gambler either. We can cut some of this out because now we're just talking Vegas. But um, I don't gamble either. Like I, I always do the Wizard of Oz slot because obviously, um, but that's like all I do. So for me, I'm like if I were to spend a day in Vegas, like I would want it to be nice weather so I could sit by the pool and drink. Like that's all I would do. I would like walk around town and drink openly because I could do that. It would just revolve yeah, around drinking. That's pretty much what it is, which is why I'm on day two of dry January at this point and I'm feeling good about it (laughs) like I'm like I think my body just needs a solid break for a minute yes I hear you as I drink my wine (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, listen, I'll I'll be back on it in February for sure. But I was just like, I need a break. I need to start like running again. Good new on you. New me, right? All right. So we are going to be doing problematic faves today. And yes. Keegan, I believe you are going to be going first. Yes. So I am going first. I do want to preface uh, this episode out by saying that the creator of your fave is problematic. The Tumblr page that kind of started it all started mm-hmm. this like accountability movement um, trend. Her name is Liat Kaplan or Liat Kaplan. She came forward earlier this year to say that she looks back on her blog with a lot of regret um, for having kind of like kickstarted this this movement, mostly because it lacked nuance. So on her page, like known misogynists were oftentimes like lumped in with people who made like silly faux pas or you right. know, got like a tattoo in a language they didn't speak or something like that. Right. There and was a large like variety or range, I guess, of ways that someone could be problematic. Yeah, totally. And while it's good to have these conversations, which is why, you know, we are having this episode today, why we've had these episodes in the past, I'm glad that, um, you know, and I'm glad that she began this dialogue when it comes to holding celebrities accountable for their behavior and pointing out a lot of hypocrisy. Like, I'm so glad that that's something that we do openly talk about and discuss because it has shifted our culture in a lot of positive ways as well as, you know, some negative ways. Right. It is important to acknowledge, you know, before we get started, and I think this is something that we talk about every time we talk about a problematic fave, that we're all human beings and we're all constantly changing and evolving and we've all done things that we're not proud of. Right. (laughs) You know, so just I wanted to kind of acknowledge that because she did come forward. Well, I guess it wasn't this year. Yeah. Last year, 2020, to, (laughs) to say that. Or 2021. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> What's time? What is time? It is but a flat circle, right? Indeed. Indeed. And for any of those who are curious, Liat did uh, go on to become a gender and women's studies major, and she now writes for Ms. Magazine. That's so really can, cool. Yeah, it's very, very cool. And we can link her op-ed in, in the comments or in the show notes. Her op-ed was titled My Year of Grief and Cancellation, which kind of talked all about her emotional journey dealing with her blog and her current yeah. feelings about well, it, you know? I think it's just, like, a really good thing to hear from the person, I guess, that kind of, like, started this whole thing because it is something that we talk about a lot. Like, when we talk about problematic faves, they are a lot of people's favorites for a reason. And it's really easy to find the mistakes and the bad things in people's lives, but it is still important to be able to see them as a whole person. But at the same time, especially since we're talking about people... I think it's good to understand your idols and understand the people that you look up to. So while we are never here to say you shouldn't like something or someone for any of these reasons, it's just that it's healthy to be able to take a look at somebody for the whole person that they are instead of idolizing them in a certain way in your head. Right, right. And understanding where the criticism comes from, because I think people... Um, with the person that I'm getting ready to talk about as well, I think people get very defensive when it's someone you idolize and someone you really like. I think I'm, people get very defensive about it, you know? Um, again, I'm thinking we're doing the same person. I'm always like, oh, God, we're doing the oh same no. person. Uh, 
but but yeah, I mean, like I felt that way, and I've I've come to really enjoy and appreciate Taylor Swift. But I did Taylor Swift previously, right? And well, and also like when we covered Taylor Swift, it was before she had ever come out with any of her political views or anything like that, and there was a huge sure. question mark. Like to me, like yes. there, like all of this is so in a time capsule too. Like we, you can go back and listen to our first year of episodes, and it's going to be like a, another world. So much has happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's also it, it's important to to highlight like why these people were criticized at the time that they were criticized. Right. So with all of that said, I am <laughs> if you listen to my other podcast, My Worst Date, you'll know that I have beef with Miley Cyrus. OK. <gasps> OK. She I was between two people and Miley was one of them. But I'm yeah. really glad. I'm very glad that you're doing this because we have discussed with each other our love but eekness for Miley Cyrus yeah okay so here's my thing I've brought it up several times on that show and I always feel like I am fighting for my life whenever I I bring up that I have issues with Miley Cyrus because a lot of people really really like Miley Cyrus and I can see why she's got a lot of blind spots though Yeah, I mean, I can totally see why people like her, though. Like, she grew up as a child star. She kind of, like, fought against all odds to come into her own. And she's now very unapologetically herself. And that's appealing. Yeah, I was was a huge Hannah Montana watcher till way past when I should have been by society standards. I loved Hannah Montana. I loved Miley Cyrus. My first concert ever was the Hannah Montana, Miley Cyrus, Jonas Brothers tour when I was like Mm -hmm. 15. That was like my big like stadium, first stadium concert that I went to. So for me, it was like I always really loved Miley and her music when she was like in her Disney era. So it's one of those things for me where it's like, I don't really listen to her music anymore and I don't really follow a lot of what she does anymore. But in my heart, I'm like, I remember my like teenage self singing See You Again with my friends in the car and things yeah, you like have that, a lot you know, of nostalgia tied to her, which yeah. I don't as much. And then that might be part of it as well. Like when my when Hannah Montana came out, I was 16. Right. It came yeah. Out the, the month I turned 16. I was like so, 13. Like and that's why like I was kind of in that age. But I continued watching it until I moved to L.A. in its final year. I, it was like a comfort thing for me. I freaking loved that show. I rewatched you, it when it came on Disney Plus. <laughs> she's two years younger than me, which means she's one year older than you. So, I mean, it she's actually she's actually a little bit younger than me. She is 92. She's November something. 92. Oh. Or maybe oh, a couple okay. months older than me then. Yeah. Cause I don't she, know why I thought you were three years younger than me. You're only two years younger than I'm me. I'm like two and a half-ish, I think. Because you're about the same age as Max. But I, Because I remember growing up that Miley, Demi, and Selena were all the same age. And Selena's birthday is like a few days before mine. I just remember them all being like my age and being like, who would I want to like be friends with? And who would I hang out with? Like that was just kind of like my experience of them. I had a huge crush on Nick Jonas. Oh my God. <laughs> I was so in that like Disney See, world. I, I really wasn't. I really wasn't at all. So I didn't have that kind of emotional attachment. So the things that came later for Miley Cyrus really got under my skin in a big, big way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so most of you know who Miley is, of course. But just for a quick refresher, Miley Ray Cyrus was born Destiny Hope Cyrus on November 23rd, 1992. Her father is um, country music singer Billy Ray Cyrus of Achy Breaky Heart fame. I was going to say the one hit wonder, Achy Breaky Heart. Yeah, but it made them tons of money. It was huge. I mean, like that song was 
massive in the 90s. He's literally now had like two big hits. He's had Achy Breaky Heart and Old Town Road. He's mm. going to be living the rest of his life sitting pretty with all that. And the Hannah Montana money. Yeah, Hannah Montana money. He was, you know, in the show as well with yep. his daughter. So obviously she grew up with a tremendous amount of privilege and opportunity, like a tremendous amount. And I do think that that is an important thing to highlight when you're talking about these people. I mean, same thing with Taylor Swift. It doesn't make them not talented, However, well, Taylor lies about her background, though, and that's what's like weird to me. She's like, oh, I was just like living on a farm with my family. She makes it sound like she had this like humble upbringing. A lot of people do that. A lot of people of of privilege tend to do that, um, especially in the country music scene, because they don't want you to think of them as wealthy. I recently found out that Kid Rock comes from like obscene wealth and he has cultivated this very working class kind of persona um, because it's more appealing, especially to country music fans. But I do think it's important to point out the privilege that these people have when you're talking about the missteps, mistakes, um, insensitive things that they do later on, because because of course you know what I mean when you're when you come from that kind of uh, life of like privilege and opportunity yeah so she was cast to play the title character on Disney's Hannah Montana in 2006 and it was an immediate hit premiering to the largest audience for a Disney Channel program and quickly it ranked among the highest rated series on basic cable which made Miley an instant star she was instantly a teen idol right like right away at 14 yeah or almost 14 Uh, She signed a four album deal with Hollywood Records, and this was the beginning of her music career. Being a Disney star, Miley's image was carefully controlled from the time that she was very, very young, allowing for very little in the way of self-expression when it came to her music or her appearance. Yeah. Which is tough like tough to deal with when you feel like and she's talked about it often a lot of child stars especially a lot of people on that Disney child star pipeline yeah talk about this well and there was such a huge culture at the time too like that was when the purity ring thing was really big like there was this like Christian culture running through Disney Channel that was really interesting so there was a lot of expectation but then at the same time and I'm sure you're going to touch on this was when this is kind of when like MySpace and social media kind of started so there were like pictures being leaked online of them like acting not like they're supposed to by Disney standards and things like that, which really put a lot of these like teenagers under fire when like I did crazy stuff as a teenager too, because I was finding out who I was, but you're put under this extreme microscope and you're, you're expected to behave a certain way 24 seven when your teenage self, all you want to do is rebel so that you can figure out who the hell you are, you know? Right. I mean, that's all completely natural. Yeah. And, you know, she was under this very strict kind of the thumb of this major corporation. Um, and it wasn't, as you often see with child stars, it's not just your livelihood. It's the livelihood of your entire family. Like her dad was on this show with her. And she's got a bunch of siblings and stuff, too. Like she comes from a big family. And I can see where that would be like a lot of weight on her shoulders and responsibility. Yeah, sure. Um so, I mean, yeah, like you said, given this, it would make sense that she would want to rebel against this and, and break free when the opportunity uh, arose. I don't begrudge her that at all, you know, and we saw that starting to happen 
when she released her third album, which was Can't Be Tamed. I can't be tamed. <laughs> yeah. When she turned 18, basically, she released that um, that single. And then also there was some controversy around her doing pole dancing on stage at the VMAs. I watched um, that live. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe it was the MTV Music I think Awards. it was the MTV. Remember. It was something like that. It was some sort of like very cheesy over the top big award show. Right. Was it, it wasn't that, a classy one, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was that same year that photos leaked of her smoking out of a bong. Um, and again, this is all pretty standard teenage stuff, standard 18-year-old stuff. Yeah. But because of who she was um, and this image that w- was being crafted for her career, she was forced to apologize for that. Yeah. So I think all of this, I, I preface all of these things by saying that this is how we got to where we ended up getting to, right? right? This is this is where things started to get a little messy for Miley was after this. This is the time period where I personally started to... I, I felt in, ambivalent towards Miley Cyrus right. up until this point. Like, I didn't care either way. Right. Like, Party in the USA came on and like, oh, that's a fun song to sing along to in the car or, or whatever. But I didn't have any strong feelings about Miley Cyrus until the bangers era. You know, I cannot agree with you more on that. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Okay. Let's get into it. In 2013, Miley signed with RCA Records. So she moved away from the label that was owned by Disney and um, because she, you know, completed her contractual obligation. Well, she can't be tamed, Keegan. Yes. So she signed. And at this point, you know, she's 21. She's signed with RCA Records and she began working with producers to create a more hip hop influenced style and sound. So she started collaborating with rappers like Snoop Dogg, who is going by Snoop Lion at that time. Yep. Will Will I Am and Lil Twist, where she was featured on his song called Twerk. She then released her comeback single, We Can't Stop, followed quickly by Wrecking Ball and that music video. Um, there was a lot of controversy attached to that because she's featured swinging naked on a giant wrecking ball. There was a uh, lot of controversy, if I remember as well, around the We Can't Stop video for reasons that I think you're probably going to bring up. So, it's just, I mean, no, I probably, I don't think Well, I, I mean, am. there's a lot of like, there is some cultural appropriation within a lot of that era. And I, re- oh, I don't yes. remember the video that well. And I don't really remember the controversy either. But I do recall there being some stuff in the video and during her performances of that song that people were kind of like oh well yeah I mean there's a huge double standard and things like that that's the problem with this entire era like basically everything that I'm gonna talk about with Miley Cyrus has to do with her cultural appropriation her insensitivity towards black artists her straight up just stealing aesthetics and style and sound yeah. from black artists without giving credit for it. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, um, that same year she appeared with Robin Thicke at the VMAs where she was seen twerking and lighting a blunt on stage. And that performance was basically like the performance seen around the world. Right. Yeah. And yes, there is, if we want to have a larger conversation around the misogyny that's attached to women performing on stage right like and and uh, there's there was so much sexualization of her and and all of that like the misogyny surrounding that that's a different conversation to have um however 
it was also widely criticized and she had been criticized prior to this, you know, with the you can't stop or we can't stop video and just her general persona being featured with all of these rappers and hip hop artists. Yeah. Um, And it really feeling like she was putting on the aesthetics of blackness. Yes. um, In order for her to break out of this sweet, innocent, good girl, quote unquote. Right. And while also performing a song that is so problematic with a dude who is so problematic. I mean, I think at the time I remember Anthony uh, playing it and we would like be at the pool and stuff, blurred lines and things like that. But it was never something that's like, this is great. But I think once we all realized how fucking creepy the lyrics were. Well, I think that that's, I think it really speaks to how quickly things change. Yeah. This was 2013, which doesn't seem like it was that long ago, although now it's almost a decade ago. I know, that's wild Um, to think about. We were so unaware of of these things. We just let these things kind of slide. We talk about it when we talk about um, sitcoms, like How I Met Your Mother, and like all of all of these things that were happening around the same time when it yeah. doesn't feel like it was that long ago. But culturally, things have shifted so 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 much since then. So yeah, I mean, it was like a it was a completely different time, right? Yeah. Like even during this time, the conversation around cultural appropriation was already happening. One hundred percent. There were a lot of artists who like twerk was really coming into the mainstream at this point and there were a lot of artists who were kind of using that like even taylor swift had a video i think it was the shake it off video it was shake it um, off yeah y- yeah that was using like twerking dancers and black women as props yeah uh and that was something that we also saw Katy perry do at the same time um and so miley cyrus was accused of that similarly rightfully and she did often even in that vma performance use black women as props in her in her show yeah it's kind of to me it like and tell me if i'm wrong but to me it kind of seems like when you are displaying the people who originated something but in the background of it to me you're the headliner it's like Mm -hmm. it's almost like you're trying to get away with it still like you're saying like I'm I'm using them in the performance because I'm trying to pay tribute but it just doesn't work that way they'll legitimize me exactly my performance right but at the end of the day it's it it feels offensive yeah it feels like it just feels icky to have these people in the background literally propping you up well exactly it does and it seems like a very like politically correct response to something like that like a way to for yourself to be able to sleep at night to get away with that to be like well I'm I'm having them on stage with me so I'm still like showing representation and things like that. Like, I feel like that's like such a way for people to be able to get out of something like cultural appropriation. And I've seen that with like a lot of like TikTok dances and things like that, where there was controversy. And we'll definitely talk about that later. But in, in an interview that she gives later, she was very tone deaf about why people would be upset or at all about her using black backup dancers the way that she did throughout this entire tour and she would go on to say like they were just the dancers I liked best I don't know why people were upset about it Mm. Um, and it's just it it's we'll talk about that entire interview later but it just reeks so much of of privilege and 
a complete misunderstanding or lack of understanding or unwillingness to understand. I was going to say um, it's an it's issues. an unwillingness to be educated, and it's like right. digging it's digging your feet down further and, and being getting stubborn, defensive exactly. instead of stopping and and listening to why this might be a problem, right? right. Um, so Bangers was hugely successful for her financially and it resurrected her career that was basically dead in the water at that point. Yeah. And Miley even did an interview. You know, she had a lot of beef. There's a lot of back and forth with Nicki Minaj and Nicki yeah. Minaj is her own problematic personality. Right? Miley, what's but, good? Yes. Miley, what's good? There was a lot of like back and forth feuding between her and Nicki Minaj, but and Nicki Minaj has her own issues, but in this instance, she was rightfully kind of calling out Miley Cyrus's like very problematic behavior throughout 100%, this. hundred percent, yeah. And it all kind of started because Miley Cyrus gave an interview where she said, um, "I a lot of people are trying to turn me into the white Nicki Minaj, mm. and even though I like hood music... I'm a singer, mm. right? And that feels so racial and so, like, what are you saying? Like, when, that you, is when, when you use racist. terms like ghetto and hood yep. to refer to black people, black music, yeah. um, without fully having an understanding of those cultures and those terms, it feels very insensitive. And to be honest, insulting to Nicki Minaj it's like, you know so insulting because like once it's racist and two you're like it's not like I do that like trash music you know what I mean like right, she's I'm a com- singer exactly yeah. Ooh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ooh, yeah don't like it so there were a lot of black artists um like I said including Nicki Minaj a lot of black female artists at the time who resented the fact that it appeared as though she was putting on their lifestyle as a costume that she could take off anytime she wanted and she was getting this attention and praise for doing so something that has always been a part of their art, black art Mm -hmm. um, and lives. And they correctly assumed that when it didn't serve her anymore, she would drop it. Right. Yep. And uh, this also I wanted to point out wasn't the first time that Miley was accused of being racially insensitive. In 2009, a photo leaked of her with friends pulling their eyes back Mm -hmm. uh, and making other gestures that appeared to be mocking Asian people. Right. And there, you know, when I I look at this photo now and I again, there's nuance to this conversation. She was 17. It was 2009, which, as we just said, like culturally, we were in a different place. However, I I really feel like (laughs) you still knew that like doing something like that as a group because um, it was a group of white kids with one Asian kid in the photo who was the oh, only one not making. Yeah. See, to me, um, you you're very very aware. Like I, it's funny when you when we talk about that in particular because I feel like when we were kids, much like saying something was gay to say it was weird or bad or something like or that, using the R word, yeah, which is something that was commonly done. So yeah. commonly done. There were a lot of mm-hmm. I think like really offensive like phrases and things that were done when we were like really young. But by the time I was old enough to understand the fact that that could be harmful to somebody I didn't do it anymore and I most certainly never would have gotten in a group photo with anything like that you know I I wouldn't have wanted to be a Mm -hmm. part of that by the time I was 17 years old and especially if Miley and I are the same age she should have known better by then as well right I mean and the thing that I actually found most heartbreaking about that photo or most upsetting about that photo was that there was an Asian young man in the photo and that's what I'm saying there's no way you don't know that you're doing something wrong because you're making it a point that everyone around this person is doing it except for that well but here's the thing like and and this is 
as somebody who is a person of color who grew up around white people, like, and almost exclusively had white friends, um, there are a lot of, like, these, it's a complicated conversation because these people like you, you're hanging out with them, they are your friends, but they do think it's funny to constantly point out the ways in which you're different from them. And, and, it's all a joke, right? These are your friends and it's a joke. And I can just see looking at this kid in this photo that he is just going along to get along. Yeah. Because you want to assimilate so much that you join in on the joke where Uh you're just like, haha, it's funny. I'm not offended by that. It's funny. Like we're all friends. It's like, it's a a time. It's a defense mechanism, you know? Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, it just makes me so upset because it's an experience that I feel like, minorities who grow up in predominantly white um, communities or around predominantly white groups of of friends experience a lot. And it's a really horrible feeling whenever you finally have to grapple with the fact that you just laughed at your own like identity. Yeah. 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 Uh, So I just wanted to point that out because yes, she was 17 at the time and we've all done dumb stuff, but I do think that it highlights the immense amount of tone deafness and privilege that Miley was operating from prior to her bangers days. And when, and then she made a very calculated decision to co-opt and profit from a culture that it would later become clear that she knew nothing about. Right. So after bangers served its purpose, which was basically to pull Miley out of the child star mold and to make her appear more edgy and grown up. She denounced hip hop and rap genres entirely in an interview with Billboard prior to the release of her single Malibu, in which she obviously tried to craft a more mellow image. And she was trying very clearly to distance herself from controversy. Yeah. And from Um, the wild girl kind of image. Right. And you can see it. You look at the cover of that Billboard um, article, right? And she is very much going, trying to go back to these like country roots. It's very like soft. She looks very feminine. She's wearing like florals. And I also remember that this was when she got back together with Liam's Hem- Liam yes. Hemsworth because like they yes. were broken up during the whole bong bangers era pretty much. Mm-hmm. And then this I think was like around the time that they were like getting engaged. Like I just remember so much of the talk about her during this time. Clearly, yeah. I have a great memory for it. Like, And I think she was trying to create this more like, I'm getting married. I'm more oh, grown absolutely. up. She changed absolutely. her hair again. Like, She uh-huh. really did try to put forth a different image. Yeah, no, she absolutely did. And the, the interview was very, dis- it was weird. It was very disjointed and rambling. And in it, you know, she talks about how like she hasn't smoked weed in however like amount of time and like she's very clear headed. But it doesn't feel that way. Like the interview feels very rambly and it's very long um but she does distance herself from hip-hop saying and i'm gonna use not that you're not used to it on this podcast but i'm gonna use some vulgar language but this is what she said um she said i can't listen to that anymore that's what pushed me out of the hip-hop scene a little it was too much lamborghini got my rolex got a girl on my cock i'm so not that Oh, I don't think we've ever said the word cock on the exactly, show. Exactly, which is why I wanted to give a quick disclaimer. Put a quarter um, in the swear jar, Keegan. Jeez, listen. we've never gotten that dirty before. I look, I, I felt like it must be said. Miley used the language, not me. They're her <laughs> words. Uh, I mean, it's a really, honestly, it is a satisfying word to say. It's all the like 
percussive which is why like i know that a lot of people hate this word but if you say it not as like a true insult like max and i will both be like you cunt jokingly between the two of us would never go anywhere else because it can be so such a loaded word but i love the word cunt yeah it's definitely very much like a that word is very much a cultural thing it's very british americans have a hard time with that word a lot but in other cultures like it's like not a big deal it's such a fun Um, word to say (laughs) But in this interview, she's very much painting hip hop with this very wide misogynistic brush. Yeah. um, And very like money hungry. Like there's a lot of like negative negative undertones. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like negative stereotypes that's being that are being attributed to a um, form of music that is predominantly black. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it proves that she has almost no understanding of the genre, of its cultural importance or origins. And it's an offensive oversimplification of the genre. Um, It's also extremely hypocritical because during her bangers era, when she was trying to use hip hop and black culture to like muss up her, her clean image, she famously got into a nude bikini got on stage and performed the you know iconic but very sexually graphic hip-hop song my neck my back yeah (laughs) on stage in a nude bikini and that was your choice that and you you chose that rap song to do you could have done any other song but that was your choice and that's fine but then don't go back and say that there's so much wrong with it you know, right? There's nothing wrong with being sexual on stage. No, expre- women sex like expressing their sexuality on stage. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. However, she's pointing the finger at hip hop culture and at other people as being part of the problem. Whenever she was part of the problem, yeah, like according to her, the quote unquote problem, right? Um, and she's acting like it's something that she fell into and not a decision that she made. Yeah, uh, you know, which is is an issue. Yeah. Um, and also, and also, misogyny is, of course, something that undoubtedly exists within hip hop. If you are a hip hop fan, which I am, if you're a rap fan, you kind of have to come to terms with the fact that there is a lot of misogyny in a lot of, of hip hop. However, it exists in almost all music genres. Yeah. Um, and it definitely exists within country music. Oh, my God. It does, absolutely it ever, does. does it ever? Does it Right. Ever. So to single out hip hop as like hip hop is so misogynistic. Yeah. Whenever it's something that exists across all genres. Because is- misogyny exists in any person. You know what I mean? So any person making music could write a song that's misogynistic. It isn't genre specific, you know? Right. Yeah. So Treva B. Lindsay, who's a professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Ohio State University, told Mike in an interview um, whenever she read Miley Cyrus's critique of hip hop, she said that she found um, her critique to be disingenuous. Quote, hip hop is intimately tied to the ascension of Miley Cyrus beyond Hannah Montana. Mm-hmm. I appreciate anyone critiquing sex. I appreciate anyone critiquing sexism and misogyny in pop culture, but it's fascinating that her critique goes to hip hop culture and not culture more broadly. Yep. So her characterization of hip hop culture as purely misogynistic also misses the reality that hip hop has been one of music's most progressive genres. Um, Hip hop and rap 
has been used since its inception to call out social injustice and racial injustice. And by labeling the genre as inherently misogynistic, she shows that she really did not educate herself on the history of black culture in America before wearing that culture as a costume Mm -hmm. for financial gain. Um, So after the interview went viral and was widely criticized, she defended her comments in a since-deleted Instagram post, saying that she prefers, quote, uplifting conscious rap, which, again, Mm. feels very condescending. Yeah. It just feels incredibly condescending. Um, It was clear to me also, and this is what you were saying, that given the timing of this interview and the image that Miley was trying to portray at the time, that she was associating hip-hop and blackness with immaturity and misogyny and going back to her more country pop roots with maturity and growth and purity. Mm. And this was right before her marriage to Liam Hemsworth. And as we've seen recently with Ariana Grande, pop stars just love to drop blackface or Latina face when they get married and decide that they want to appear more grown. Right. right? And why? And why? Why? Why does, does darker like, skin? Yeah, it's yes. weird. I, I would never that. unpack it. Right. I would never have that thought to be like, I'm married. So I'm going to drop that bronzer down a couple shades. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's indicative of it. what it says is that you feel like black women are it's okay when you want to be seen as a sexual object Uh but it's not okay when you want to be seen as a housewife yep right and um that's incredibly problematic and it's it comes from some deep-rooted racism oh yeah (laughs) so it usually goes like this young innocent white girl artists and we could do an entire episode on this wants to break out uh of that and transition from girl to woman in the public eye and so she does so by appropriating the quote-unquote edginess of black culture And then when they want to transition from young woman to grown woman, they transition back to to being white. And we've seen this with Christina Aguilera, Gwen Stefani, Katy Perry, etc. So many artists appear to not be interested in the real issues that affect the black community, yet they don't hesitate to capitalize on the coolness of black culture. Right. And we see this over and over again. And I think it is an important conversation to have that like, it is very difficult for female artists, especially child artists, to grow up yeah. in the public eye and and to make that tr- transition successfully. And I think that that a lot of that has to do with sexism. Yeah. Really? So that's something that needs to be addressed. But don't do it by using another culture to exactly, do that. exactly. Because there are real negative impacts that these kinds of moves have on the black community as a whole. Like black girls are already sexualized and considered to be more grown than white girls of the same age. And black boys are considered to be more sexual and more aggressive than white boys of the same age. You know, and perpetuating the idea that like this is edgy or rough or aggressive or hypersexual. It's perpetuating that idea and it's not affecting Miley, but it's affecting real people. Right. And there's a long history in America of America loving blackness, but not loving black people. It's existed since the beginning of popular music. Artists like Elvis Presley stealing songs and dance moves from black artists and profiting off of it. And TikTokers, you know, black TikTokers went on strike last year. Yeah. (laughs) Because they were like, we're creating a lot of what's being used on TikTok. And then it's being 
used by white TikTokers whose accounts are blowing up and they're making all this money and giving no credit to black creators, you know. The rest of this article, I think another reason why this article was so difficult for people was because it put, it was so jarring. It was so very clear in a way that I had never really seen before. Um, it was so obvious and stark what she had done, like put it on and then took it off again. Right. Uh, she literally said like, basically like this was a, a costume for me. I don't need it anymore. And I'm ready to go back to my comfy white girl lifestyle. Mm. And it's pretty much confirmed in this article. Like she wanted to get her white listener base back. Yeah. Um, so she says that she was inspired to quote, reach beyond her circle of outspoken liberals and cultivate country fans and red staters in 2016. Why? When she became a coach on the voice, right? She went on to say, quote, I like talking to people who don't agree with me, but I don't think I can do that in an aggressive way. I don't think these people are going to listen to me when I'm sitting there in nipple pasties. (laughs) And I feel like there's a ton to unpack from that. There's so much to unpack from that. Like, I don't even know. I was thinking of responses multiple times during what you just said, and I don't know where to start. But yes, I understand there misogyny is going to make it so that a lot of people will probably not take you seriously in nipple pasties and that's other people's problem not yours first of all but I just have a problem with her using the fact that she likes talking to people that are different from her and turning that into I want them to like come to my side or to like me where I personally am not very concerned with what the right thinks of me personally. So to hear her right. say that she cares about that side of the aisle liking her because that's what it sounds like to me. Yes. That's upsetting yes. to me because especially when Miley has such a do what you want, fuck it, no regrets kind of personality. Even after her bangers era, she still was like, she's just being Miley. You know what I mean? That was just kind of her whole thing. That shows you how calculated a lot of that truly is. Not that it wasn't obvious before, but she's, she's telling you that she doesn't care about what kind of people listen to her music or the people that she's supporting, you know? Right. Well, I mean, especially since she never addressed how her actions hurt the black community. Yeah, well, because she refuses to acknowledge it. Yeah, so it really gives me vibes that she felt more empathy towards white people who disagreed with her rather than the community she stole from and profited off of. 100%. Um, and she also said in that article, she said that she feels like country music, her country music card has been like taken away from her and she wants it back. And she says that, quote, country music fans are scared of me and that hurts me. Uh, so she's wow. also just in- incredibly tone deaf in that article, like I said earlier, about um, her use of, of black backup dancers yeah. and black aesthetics and not understanding. It's that same old thing that we hear white people say all the time that like, I appreciate the culture. That's why I was doing it, you know? Yeah. Um, but it really does reek of, of privilege to me. And it says that she just really wanted to sit on both sides of the aisle and she wanted to have everyone like her, even if it's harmful to take a neutral position yeah. when it comes to things like race. Right. Um, I do, I'm going to wrap it up here, but I do want to talk a little bit about some of the good stuff. She did back in 2014, start a nonprofit, um, advocacy organization called the happy hippie foundation that is working to end homelessness for LGBTQ youth in Los Angeles. And that is very, very cool around that time as well. She also talked about weed legalization 
and opened the conversation up around pansexuality, which is is how she identifies, mm-hmm. and animal rights, and has been very open about all these things, which I think is why so many people were hurt and confused by her seemingly like being seemingly unable to address the ways in which she herself has been problematic when it comes to the appropriation of black culture. Right, when she's defensive. when she's an yeah. activist for other things, right. Yeah, yeah, and very outspoken about it, you know. Uh, it wasn't until 2019 when a YouTuber released a video titled Miley Cyrus is my problematic fave, sorry, in which she called out Miley's history of racism and cultural appropriation that Miley actually got into the comment section on YouTube to finally give a long overdue apology. So she said, quote, thank you for giving me this opportunity to speak up. Being silent is not like me at all. Then why'd you do it for so long? Right. But, um, I am aware of my platform and have always used it the best way I know how and to shine a light on injustice. I want to start with saying I am sorry. I own the fact that saying this pushed me out of the hip hop scene a little was insensitive as it is a privilege to have the ability to dip in and out of the scene. There are decades of inequality that I am aware of, but still have a lot to learn. Silence is part of the problem, and I refuse to be quiet anymore. My words became a divider in a time where togetherness and unity is crucial. I cannot change what I said at the time, but I can say I am deeply sorry for the disconnect my words caused. Simply said, I fucked up, and I sincerely apologize. I... I'm committed to using my voice for healing, change, and standing up for what's right. I appreciate that statement. However, she's apologizing for saying things about hip hop and she's not really apologizing for the entire bangers era. Right. And she's so. not apo- it's kind of like the I'm sorry I said that kind of excuse, right. you know. Instead of I start I'm sorry I did that. Like that's what I would really appreciate from her is I'm you know, I shouldn't have I was unaware I was insensitive whatever just like apologize for the thing you did. Right. Anyway, she has since moved on to find her own sound. And I have to say that um, while I still find her kind of like annoying in interviews, yeah. uh, I find her personality a little grating, but I like her music. I think that she's got this kind of like pop rock sound now that I actually really enjoy. And she's come into her own and I'm, I'm proud of her for that. I do yeah. think she's growing as a, as a person and an individual. She just needs to um, start taking responsibility for things and continue to take responsibility for things. And I... I think that's kind of the answer with any of these people. It's like it's time and actions that are going to change public opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do, you know, I give everyone a little bit of grace because I know it must be difficult to grow up that way. Right. And, you know, have everything scrutinized yeah. all the and time. I mean, but. she was so hypersexualized when she was younger, too. And I mean, there were like pictures that were leaked of her yes yeah you know there are so many things that i think are so damaging to young child stars where it makes so much sense that they would not react to things like you and i would and grow up in the same way that you and i would but it also doesn't excuse um a lack of education or a lack of wanting to be educated on things that are really important especially if you do have a large platform Totally. And just acknowledge, just acknowledge, like, even if you say like, "Uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, yeah, that was messed up for me to have done, you know, so yeah. Anyway, there you have it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. There's Miley Cyrus. Well, she was one that I was thinking of, but I went with Amy Schumer instead. Oh, man. Okay. Were you with me when I booed Amy Schumer as I walked past her at the march? No. You were with me, but I don't think you were, like, standing next to me. We were, like, walking um, up the steps from, like, where all the speakers were, and she was going to walk down and make a speech. And I was like, I don't want to listen to her talk. Oh, yeah. I do remember her speaking. And she, I remember her, like, she wasn't, like, right next to me, but she was, like, walking by me with, like, her posse or whatever. And I was like, boo you. Yeah, I mean, yes, I, I the other person who I was thinking about doing who I feel similarly towards, um, although I like this person even more than I like Amy Schumer, is uh, Tina Fey. Yeah. Right. Where it, it's like a similar kind of thing. See, There's a lot that they do that I enjoy. But then occasionally you're like, mm. I <laughs> never really jumped on the Amy Schumer train. I watched Trainwreck. I thought it was funny. That was kind of like when she first was, I guess, kind of like main mainstream popular because she had her show inside Amy Schumer before that and like was bigger in the comedy circles. But I just didn't. And I liked a lot of her feminist commentary, but I wasn't really like a big Amy Schumer fan in general. And then the more things about her that I found out I didn't like the more I was yeah. just kind of not on board. But I have watched most of her specials. I thought her most recent one, Growing, was great. I watched all yes, of Expecting I Amy. her most recent one, yeah. I've almost started mm-hmm. liking her more lately than I did, I feel like, when she was, like, more popular. But doing the research for this episode has really reminded me about why I have such a problem with her. Yeah. And it's really hard for me to overlook a lot of these things. So let's get into it. I'm going to start with a little bit of her background, just like you did, because I think it's really important, like you said, to understand where people are coming from. Uh, She was born on June 1st, 1981. So she's a Gemini. I had to look it up. I was like, a Gemini. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, very, like, who is she? Miley's Miley's a Sagittarius, I think. I think so. Yeah. I don't get along with Sagittarius's. Uh oh. So she was born in the Upper East Side of Manhattan to Sandra and Gordon. Yeah, she came from money, too. She came from money. Uh, Gordon was Jewish, and his family was from the Ukraine. He's also the second cousin to Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Mm -hmm. They are related. Her mother, Sandra, has a Protestant background and has deep New England roots, but converted to Judaism before marrying Gordon. So again, she's kind of got like the New England... Kind of, yeah, mm-hmm. totally. So Amy herself was raised Jewish, and her dad Gordon owned a high-end baby furniture company. So, oh god, right? Ugh. And that led—that's a string of words I don't like together. It's weird, <laughs> high-end baby furniture, Ooh. which led to the family living with much wealth during her early childhood. But when Amy was nine, the business went under, and her dad filed for bankruptcy. A few years later, he was diagnosed with MS, and her parents separated. 
Um, she is close with her parents. I remember seeing her dad in the Expecting Amy documentary and stuff, and she's very close with them. They seem like such kind, wonderful, caring people. After her parents' divorce, she and her mom moved to Long Island. In high school, she was voted class clown and teacher's worst nightmare, which means we would not have gotten along in high school. Like, those are the types of people that I hated in school. I I wouldn't have been able to do that either. I mean, that's my thing with, as much as I love and adore comedy, that's one of my things is like, comedians in general have to be on all the time. All the time. It's It's insufferable. It's insufferable. Like, I have a lot of like, comedian friends and I love them so much, but like, it's exhausting being in a room of them. Actors are... Actors are bad enough. Like, oh, then, yeah. When then you go to comedians who they do, they always. I mean, this is again a broad generalization. Yes. And I do love comedy and comedians. Not all comedians. It's just you know? it's just that we live but, in the world a little bit, so we know. <laughs> yeah, so you you do oftentimes, and they'll admit this too. There's oh, yeah. a lot of like trying to one up each other that happens. Oh and so, yeah, like, it's very like loud and obnoxious very quickly. Yes. Oh, yeah. I went to a Halloween party this year where it was mostly comedians, and it was a you know we all got dressed up and we all had characters, and it was like a murder mystery thing, and uh, yeah, it was overwhelming oh. even to me. I was just like. Yeah. I can't, I can't with all the voices and the jumping up. And I'm like, it's too much. It's too much. How do you have so much energy? Like, I'm tired. Because, because a lot of, I mean, we can go into the psychology of comedy and all that and why, why it's important for people to want to make others laugh and all that kind of stuff. I think there's a lot to say about people who, you know, have that personality, you know, it's not a bad Mm -hmm. thing. It's just something to look at. So after high school, she moved to Baltimore, Maryland to attend Townsend University, where she graduated with a degree in theater in 2003. She then went back to New York and studied at the William Esper Studio, a school which teaches the Meisner technique, which we both learned. Um, And Mm -hmm. I did not know this about her, that she was like a Meisner kid. Like, I don't picture her as being that kind of actor, you know? I don't either, but I, I bet you it's very helpful in like improv and acting I mean in like comedy yeah Meisner is so improv based because it's about yeah. reading the other person and reacting it's reaction based yeah it's yeah. all reaction based so in comedy it would make a lot of sense but some other people that went to the William Esper studio were Kathy Bates Larry David Kristen Davis Jeff Goldblum Patricia Heaton and Sam Rockwell so like some pretty major people mm-hmm. went through that um, those classes while she was attending those classes she worked as a bartender and waitress just like which, Every entertainer yes. at some point. <laughs> and she loves to point to that. That's something that drives me crazy about people who came from a lot of money is that they love to point to these like periods of time when they were slumming it. Yeah. With us regular folk working at like restaurants and stuff when I'm like, OK, great. Like, I'm glad that you had that experience. But that's what we all not. had to do, too. Like, you right. know what I mean? Like, I had a job when I was in school. Mm-hmm. Most people, I mean, not everybody, but most people have to do something to get by even when they are in school because they're an adult you know what I mean like that's just what you do it's expected and oftentimes these people don't have to and they are choosing to and that's worth something but like but but we're not going to praise you for that you know it's weird so at some point during this general time she briefly moved to Santa Barbara with her abusive boyfriend so trigger warning to this next section she does talk about abuse a bit whether or not it was the same man she's referring to uh, that she moved to Santa Barbara with there are many interviews and stand-up specials which include discussion of both physical and sexual assault in a relationship as a joke she referred to her rape as a quote gray area rape as a way to try and educate her audience about consent she told Oprah I lost my virginity while I was asleep and that's not okay 
And I think that while that could be taken, I think, as um, a bit harsh or things like that, I actually think that having comedy surrounding something that is as awful and violating as rape is mm-hmm. really important. And I think that talking about that gray area is really important because it's it's date rape, which I think a lot of people have a really hard time understanding and reconciling when you love someone. And she even goes on to say that. I didn't say anything about consenting. He was my boyfriend. I loved him. I had to comfort him. As a woman, we're trained not to get angry because that makes people dismiss you right away. And I think that having that whole conversation is actually a a big plus of why people really like Amy Schumer because she is so honest about the experiences that she's had. Right. Yeah. And she can articulate them well. I don't love the phrase gray area rape right. in general. Yeah. I understand that it's part of a comedy, you know, stand up routine. Right. And so I know that that's why she's using that phrasing. And like that's where it becomes difficult to talk about comedians um, because I do think introducing the the discussion about date rape, um, you know, sexual violence within relationships is so important. Um, In a regular conversation, day-to-day conversation, I would never stand for it being called Exactly, and I think that that's kind of the danger with comedy in general is that it's like giving people idea of things to say and use in their lives. And I think it's understanding that there's like a time and a place to be able to use those jokes because I know for myself – I reconcile a lot of the bad choices that I've made. I reconcile a lot of my mental health stuff with humor um, because it makes me feel a little bit less shitty about the things that I've been through in life. So, I, sure. you know, yeah. I think that the idea of it is actually really wonderful. I just worry about how people are going to take that phrase into their own lives. You know what totally. I mean? It, could, it totally. could just be taken really, really wrong. So she first started stand up. On June 1st, 2004, at the Gotham Comedy Club, I was amazed that they knew the exact date she did her first stand-up, right? Yeah. In 2007, she recorded Live at Gotham for Comedy Central before she appeared in the show Last Comic Standing. She unsuccessfully auditioned for Last Comic Standing in an early season, but she tried again on their fifth season where she made it to the finals and placed fourth. After that, she worked in some TV shows and ads, but she also had a recurring guest spot on a Fox News late night program, and I had never heard this before, called Red Eye with Greg Gutfield. Hmm. And it's like a Fox News thing. So Greg Gutfield is the show's host and creator, and he is a self-described libertarian. Some hmm. of the panelists included conservative political commentator Rachel Margson. She also worked on a talk show with Blink-182's Mark Hoppus in the show Hoppus on Music and also wrote for Cosmo magazine. Some smaller roles but bigger gigs during this time included shows like 30 Rock, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Girls, and often appeared on the Howard Stern Show. And Howard Stern is a misogynistic asshole. Yes. Um, Yes. So she's kind of like choosing to spend her time with some interesting folk. So I want to get into Amy's blind spots, as I'm calling them here. There is a lot wrong with Amy's early comedy. After working in smaller roles, she did some roasts for Comedy Central and eventually landed her own show, Inside Amy Schumer, in 2013 and started doing lots of comedy tours, specials, etc., all the things comedians do. Right. I mean, she kind of like blew up. Yeah. Like, I mean, I feel like she was like the number one female comedian for a, a span of a few years. Oh, right yeah. Then, like, she during was Inside Amy Schumer. Huge. She was yeah. huge. 
As her fame grew, the problematic things in her life began to surface. In an article by The Guardian writer Monica Heisey, it says, For such a keen observer of social norms and an effective satirist of the ways gender is complicated by them, Schumer has a shockingly large blind spot around race. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In 2015, she hosted the MTV Movie Awards, and apparently it didn't go over very well. One of her more shocking and inappropriate jokes was when she made uh, a comment about Latina women being, quote, crazy, which led to Jennifer Lopez, who was sitting in the audience, to tweet her disapproval of the joke. In one of her stand-up specials during the time, she says, and I'm so sorry for saying some of these things, but I have to say them for you to know. So Listen, you said I, cock I, earlier. I did. I did. So it's OK. Like all's fair. Because I don't believe any of this. And it's really horrible. Like it, it makes me feel dirty saying it. But she said nothing works 100 percent of the time except Mexicans. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, she also made a lot of jokes, and I don't know if you have any of these written down. The one where she says, I used to date Latino guys, now I prefer consent. Uh, And uh, and she, yes, and she's made a lot of jokes as well, like hypersexualizing black men. Yes. Like, it's, it's, I just, why? Like, there are so many ways to make jokes. Because she's the sex comedian. And so to her, she's pointing out like it's pointing out the obvious stereotypes and making jokes on them. And I and because it's working it's for her down, though. exactly. Like, that's the thing. It's not funny. Like, I, I really feel like and I'm glad we are as a society moving away from this idea of comedy, um, punching down and making fun of people. Although people are still not, pissed about it. Like you're taking like no one can take a joke anymore. Nah, nah, but nah. It's not funny. Yeah. is the problem. Like it's the not a joke. People really laughing at that are other white people and why are they laughing at it because they have um deep-seated racism that they don't want to say out loud but amy schumer will say it and so it's making it okay for them to have their own genuine reaction to it yeah so she also made fun of asian cultures by saying i think they my parents would be mad if i brought home an asian guy just out of confusion they would just be like i don't understand do you really want to fuck this guy what does that mean? I don't it's, understand what that means. Well, like, I think, well, with that, like, that, just from, like, discussions I've had with people, there's this idea that, like, Asian men can't be sexy. It's, like, almost yes. the opposite of, like, Asian women, where it's, like, well, why would you, why would you want to sleep with an Asian guy? Like, and there's a lot of, like, stereotypes about them having small penises, or, you know, like, there's a lot yeah, of things that I, are really harmful surrounding yes. men in that culture as well. So saying that it's is shitty. one of those shitty. jokes... It's one of those jokes where I would, if it was said in front of me, I would say, explain it to me. Right. Ex- explain it to me why why that's funny. Yeah. Like, why is that a joke? Because if you had to actually break down why and say out loud what the joke was. Maybe you'd feel a little stupid. Maybe you would feel bad. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, of course, her response to the criticism of her racism, she says she's a taboo comedian, and that's what she does. Duh. She said in an interview, you can call it a blind spot for racism or lazy, but you're wrong. It's a joke, and it's funny. I know, because people laugh at it, she tweeted. Yeah. Yeah. I hate that. I hate that. Well, let's keep like, this ball rolling because now we're bringing Lena Dunham into the mix, everybody. Great. So, I mean, 
for real. We could honestly have like a five-parter about our hatred for that woman. Um, Not true hatred, but you know what I mean. Um, Yes. So while on the subject of racism, we have to bring up her involvement in some Lena Dunham bullshit where she and Lena made accusations toward Odell Beckham Jr. Do you remember this? Yes. Yeah, so... This whole fiasco began with a conversation between Lena and Amy that was published in Lena Dunham's Lenny's newsletter, which was like supposed to be this like feminist newsletter kind of thing. Lena Dunham's comments here infuriate me. They are. Hold on to your butts, everybody. So Lena complained about allegedly being ignored by the football player uh, Odell Beckham Jr. at the Met Gala. She says, I was sitting next to Odell Beckham Jr. and it was so amazing because it was like he looked at me and he determined I was not the shape of a woman by his standards. He was like, that's a marshmallow. That's a child. That's a dog. It wasn't mean. He just seemed confused. And the biggest problem in this story is that it didn't happen. He literally never spoke to her the entire night. That's that's exactly the thing. And, you know, even in that interview, she doesn't say he spoke to her. That's the vibe that she got. So she's projecting her own as if this man owed her attention. Yeah. Like owed her anything. Mm -hmm. Like he didn't owe you anything. There are tons of people at at an event. Yeah. Where there's lots of other people and he does not know you. So why? Right. I don't get it. I don't get. No, it's it reeks of this privilege. And then it also it says more about the way you think about yourself. Uh huh. Than than the way that he maybe he does feel that way about you. But you have no way of knowing you have no way of like putting that out into the world and Mm -hmm. knowing that that's fact. Mm Yeah, Uh, I hated that. Yeah. And she like later was like, oh, it's just like my failed attempt at humor or whatever. But while this is all going on, Amy is part of the conversation and she doesn't make any point to what she says she doesn't try to talk her out of it or anything like that and the media kind of like went after Amy for that as well which I think they rightly did so as a friend you should hold your friends accountable when they say things that are a little shady you know or super shady in this case Amy's only response to the controversy was when she tweeted a response to a tweet from an economics professor at the new school The professor was trying to explain that men of color are no more sexist than white men, but Amy tweeted back that men of color catcall women more in the street, to which I say, Amy! Why would she, like, just, like, shut up? And what's your sources? Why would you even say anything? What are your sources? What are you, you're you're tweeting at a professor something that literally, like, you cannot back it up, and it's so fucking racist. No, and and it it does, it speaks to her need to be racist, Uh that she would open her mouth in the first place. Because it's like, you don't, you didn't need to say anything. Well, because to to her, people are still laughing and going along with it, even if it's a small percentage of people, to her, she's like, it's fine. If people are laughing, they're okay with it it's all good and that's mm-hmm. just not the way the world works that's not how she should be There's approaching her career be someone laughing at something yeah right like and who do you want on your side like do you want a bunch of racists laughing with you yep because what does that say about you it's exactly what we said about miley cyrus you want a bunch of racists yeah. singing your songs really yeah you really that's who you want on your your team yep all right So in that same Lenny letter thing, Lena brings up Kurt Mesker, who was a writer on Inside Amy Schumer, who had made fun of rape victims in a Facebook post. And a Variety article that I read states that the post this Mesker guy said mansplained how women should process and report their assaults. 
While everyone was expecting Amy to act on her feminist ideals and denounce Metzger, instead, she chalked the post up to the fact that he'd been, quote, doing this for years. And, quote, why are these women treating him like he raped someone? He's not Bill Cosby. Kurt has never raped. Oh, okay. Do you want a fucking trophy for that? I mean, like, that's wow. what I said. I'm like, while it's never been alleged or proven that this Kurt fella actually committed an assault, his comments spur on a very dangerous rape culture, and she is perpetuating that message when her whole shtick is supposed to be this like funny feminist chick, and what? And, yeah, and you I are siding it. with a person who is. Yeah. And, you know, I see that a lot in comedy circles. And, you know, part of me understands from the perspective of like, these are women who have had to assimilate into an incredibly male, toxic, misogynistic culture in large part. Like uh, the comedy scene has been very misogynistic for a long time. And there's a lot of like rape culture and stuff that happens within that. Um, seen it, but she should be standing to get away. But she should be standing against it, and she does sometimes. You know what I mean? Like she'll call out some people, but won't call out the people that were like close to her. Because they're friends, yeah, exactly. Like, and she's she and she hired them friendships with these people. It was a writer. Feels like. Mm-hmm. Well, and it was a writer yeah. for her show. It, it was her responsibility. And I think that that is why she's being so defensive as well. And after all this, she took to Twitter once again to announce that while Inside Amy Schumer wasn't canceled, they were going to be taking a long break. And then I think it just never came back. And she also mentioned in that tweet that Mesker no longer worked for the show. However, nobody worked for the show anymore as the show was no longer airing. So it was kind of an empty response. And yeah, she, a roundabout way of not having to take responsibility exactly. or apologize. And then yeah. she started complaining online about how she had to answer for the Metzger guy and then just went on this blocking rampage for anybody that um, said anything negative that. about her. I, yeah, I hate people not being able to take responsibility for just 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 own up to it. Yeah, own your That's shit. Everybody makes mistakes. Like everybody says things. Everybody makes that mistakes. Are out of pocket. Everybody has That's those right. days. Everybody Indeed. knows what what I'm talking about. Everybody it's that way. <laughs> oh my god, too perfect. Okay. Lastly, and probably most famously, Amy is one of many comedians that has come under fire for stealing jokes. And these are just so obvious. In 2014, there was a sketch on Inside Amy Schumer called Slap Chef. It was a mock commercial for a new weight loss program where a chef cooks for you, then slaps the food out of your hands before you can eat it. So this whole sketch is problematic as fuck, and I could go on. All of all of these jokes that she stole are problematic. Like none of them are good, which is another reason why it's like why why. So that joke is problematic as fuck, but she still she stole it. So in 2011. Pun stealer Kathleen Madigan. I do not like <laughs> Kathleen Madigan at all. Wait, why? Because why? one of her specials is just she's mad again. And I've been oh, using yeah. that my whole life. And it's her last Sorry. name and it's my first name. I'm more unique than her. She's Kathleen. There's a million Kathleen's in the world. I'm sorry. It's oh, like I'm gonna stay out of it because it's a it's a this sounds very personal. It was it was a thing. I remember being a kid and seeing the pun on like her um 
box special at Target and being very upset by it because I was like, that's my name. And like, I just kind of like held on to that for my whole life. I like Kathleen Madigan. I think she's funny. I've literally never seen a single thing she's done because I just don't like her because of her name. I mean, don't, don't, you know, quote me on that because it has been a while since I've seen it. So if she says some wildly problematic shit, uh, well, I mean, just know that (laughs) this is, it's every, every comedian has, especially anytime before like 2015 we're gonna find some shady Mm -hmm. stuff so in 2011 Kathleen Madigan performed a joke that went like this I get why poor people are fat but Oprah you're a billionaire you have enough money to pay a man to stand there and literally slap the shit out of your hand before you put it in your mouth I've seen that special Yeah. yeah and then I've seen her say that joke and Amy literally did that on her show As the Slap Chef sketch continues, it moves on to an ad for Sleep Gym, a new exercise program in which you're put into a coma and trainers come and work you out while you're knocked out. Kathleen's bit goes on after the awful joke about Oprah. She goes on saying, you're so rich, you could pay someone to exercise you. You could just lie there like a baby with cerebral palsy and have someone move your legs. Hmm. Fucking yikes. Did Kathleen call her out? Um, I think a lot of people did at the time. I didn't go into all the interviews and stuff, but I remember when this like came out, I went and watched like a montage of these where it was putting the jokes next to each other and you were seeing like even the delivery was similar. It's like it's weird. In 2015, for her Live at the Apollo comedy special, she makes a joke saying, I'm very old school. I think the guy should always pay on the first date for sex. In 1999, Wendy... In 1999, Wendy Liebman made the exact same joke with almost the exact same delivery. Amy in 2015 jokes about a new sex position saying, There's the Abraham Lincoln. That's where the guy trims his pubes, comes on a girl's face, and throws the pubes so she has facial hair. This joke was already stated by Patrice O'Neill in 2006 saying, Have you ever heard of a girl? Have you ever heard of Gorilla Mask Her? That's when you come in her face and then take some pubic hair and throw it at her. See, none of these are good. None of these are good jokes to steal. No. (laughs) Okay, then there's this gem. And this is the worst one. Trigger warning. Hold on to your butts. Again from 2015, Amy says, The worst one I've ever heard is the Houdini. It's where the guy's having sex with the girl from behind. Then, unbeknownst to Mm -hmm. her, his friend subs in for him. Guy one runs outside, knocks on the window, and waves to the girl. That's rape, first of all. Yes. Yeah. And Patrice O'Neill, again, in 2006, there's the poltergeist. But you need your friend for this one. You're fucking her from behind, and then you sneak out, and he takes your place. And then you walk outside and wave at her through the window. Like, she's literally stealing the yeah. worst fucking jokes in the world. Yeah, it's, it's not a good joke. Anyway, and also, that joke, that Patrice O'Neill joke, that was something that w- was that circulated when I was in high school. Yeah, like it's, it's not, old. It's not new. It's very old. And for her to tell that joke at the Apollo of all places, Patrice O'Neill is a famous black comedian um, and the Apollo is a famous black venue. Yeah. Uh, So for her to tell that joke at the Apollo is very bold. Yeah, that's that's layered there. So after all of these examples came out and this controversy started, she was asked about it in an interview and she eventually tweeted out saying, on my life, I have never and would never steal a joke. 
Okay. Okay. Well, then it's very interesting that you just happened upon the exact same jokes that someone else told. Yeah, it's wild, right? Then there's the movie I Feel Pretty. It was co-directed by Abby Cohn and Busy Phillips' husband, Mark Silverstein. The Atlantic describes it as a would-be feminist fable about beauty and self-esteem, specifically how the former is valued far too much and the latter far too little. So this is a general plot. Renee, I would never. I cannot believe that this movie was made. I can't believe it got made. It was made. I couldn't. Like, like. It's, a, it's like a Shallow Howl situation, but Shallow Howl was made at a time when I'm like, yeah, I f- can see that that was made yeah, in a while. Yeah, like if it but was made in like was... the 90s or something, it's totally yeah. on par. Mm-hmm. But also, um, Mark Silverstein wrote um, movies like He's Just Not That Into You and How to Be Ew. Single. and yeah. Busy Phillips, what are you doing? I know, I know. So it's just like, it's not really the h- most highest brow of rom-com comedy you know what I mean so the plot is about Renee who's Amy Schumer who works in a basement office tending to the website of a cosmetic company called Lily LeClaire she's insecure about her looks so she joins a soul cycle class where she suffers many humiliations before eventually falling off the cycle and hitting her head when she awakens and looks in the mirror She sees a version of herself that is the most beautiful woman in the world, though she looks the same to everyone else. So she's like, in her mind, she's the most beautiful, hot supermodel. Right. But then to everyone else, she's still Amy Schumer. But it's like... I get what they're going for in terms of like, yeah, be be confidence is what's sexy. Like, that's the message they're trying to send. However, the message that they end up sending is that Amy Schumer is some like hideous ugly woman and she has to learn to reconcile her looks with herself to feel confident and that the confidence is more important than the looks which is still kind of calling her ugly and I don't think Amy it's, it's is an ugly person ugly, and she's not no like, she's definitely not an ugly woman no so it's, and it's, it's kind of against a lot of the own jokes that she makes about the fact that like she is an average sized American woman. There's so many things that she speaks up against that I feel like that movie just totally turns on its head. That doesn't make any yeah, sense. I don't I don't like the messaging there. No, I, she flip flops her what ideals. They're going for. Yeah, I know what they're going for, but at the end of the day I actually think it's going to make women feel worse about themselves. Yes. One hundred percent. So I want to talk a little bit about Amy's supporters because she, I, you hear it all the time. She's a feminist comedian. She's a feminist icon. She speaks at all the marches, all this kind of stuff. So there are arguments to be made for the other side. To me personally, it doesn't outweigh the really negative things she's done, but I think it's important to at least look at some of the reasons why people do think of her that way. In a 2015 Vogue article, writer Carly Scirtino begins by explaining that, yes, in fact, feminists can take a joke, duh, and her defense of this was Amy Schumer, who this writer calls a radical forerunner of feminist comedy. To which I eye-rolled super hard. Carly argues that Amy's comedy makes women's issues something that dudes want to tune into. She compares her comedy for men like a mother sneaking vegetables into her kid's meal. It's like sneaking feminism on your boyfriend. I, you know, I hate that. I I really do. Me too. A similar vibe to the... Um, comments that Miley was making about needing to be palatable to her the other side of the aisle right her white country audience and it's like you actually you actually don't like I understand like wanting to convert people to whatever but 
if misogynists are listening to Amy Schumer and they're finding anything that she says funny, funny, it's it probably make them feminist, and it's probably you know? because what she's saying might be a little misogynistic, or there might be something. You know what I mean? Like, there's a reason, maybe why. I don't know. I just think it's yeah. Like, are they learning anything? No. Like, are they no? Like, because Amy Schumer is of that same cool girl, one of the guys kind mm-hmm. of people. Like, Not she like the other girl. Yes, and that was like a yeah. big part of her like draw when she was really big in the early 2000s and things like that yeah so yeah I really don't I I think you don't need to make feminist content for misogynists like yeah I mean need to do that this woman that wrote the article is essentially saying that Amy is inherently feminist because she makes being a slut and like not being ashamed about it okay and that makes her feminist People are layered, right? And so, like, that message, I think, you know, she did have a lot to do with this, like, coming into a more... Sex positive. um, Sex positive space, right? Especially, like, within comedy and everything like that. Like, you can give her that and also say that that doesn't necessarily make her a feminist icon across the board. Well, and I found it interesting because, so that was a Vogue article from 2015. I also read a Variety article from 2015 by Maureen Ryan, where she writes how toxic how toxic it is to expect women to conduct themselves in a certain way in order to be accepted by men. And that's exactly what we were talking. That's her big issue. One of her many issues with Amy and um, my big argument as to why I wouldn't consider her to be a feminist comedian. So another thing that has been seen very positively as something she's done was Amy's arrest back in 2018 when Brett Kavanaugh was just being nominated for the Supreme Court way back when hundreds Mm -hmm. of people showed up to protest outside the U.S. Senate building that October, including a pregnant Amy Schumer and her model pal, Emily Ratajkowski. I can't say her name. Capitol Police arrested 302 people, including Emily and Amy. One video showed the pair getting arrested and another shows them being processed by the officers. In her special growing, which I actually enjoyed a lot. It's a really great special from her. I, I did too. I enjoyed growing. Um, it didn't seem I, as problematic. Think, <laughs> no, it certainly yeah, yeah. wasn't. So in that special, she reflects on the arrest saying, I went down to D.C. to get arrested. Some people criticized me. They were like, that's irresponsible. You're pregnant. I was like, well, that's why I went down there. I want to be able to tell my kid I did everything I could. And I think that's honorable. I think that's, you know, one one good thumbs up for you, Amy, for that situation. Right. I mean, it's again, these conversations are so nuanced because I do see growth in Amy yeah. Schumer. I've definitely which is seen another thing why grow. I think that her show, her special was called growing because one, she was pregnant when she did it. But two, I think she did start to kind of express more vulnerability in her comedy and start to express um, instead of having to like make fun of herself it's almost like using comedy in a way to help explain her stories and her life without it being like negative and crude you know right yeah yeah I definitely I think that she's coming into her own a lot now I haven't seen her again apologize right for a, a lot of her past mistakes she hasn't where I end up having problems yeah. like it's not that you made the mistakes although those mistakes were definitely harmful to communities um, which is not okay, but everyone makes mistakes. You just have to be able to own up to those mistakes. Yeah. And, you know, 
give penance to those communities that you hurt. Yeah, definitely. I do want to give her one more um, kind of positive example because this was something that actually taught me a lot. I think it's a really important conversation. Um, Amy is married to a professional chef by the name of Chris Mm -hmm. Fisher. They got married in 2018 and Chris was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder after the couple got together and Amy has been very vocal about how the diagnosis has improved Chris's quality of life and the quality of their relationship and I think that that's so important because there is such a stigma around having autism spectrum disorder and so to be able Mm -hmm. to see how getting that diagnosis and learning the tools is actually such a positive thing and it's it's going to make your life better your relationships better everything better and not feeling like people have to hide that part of themselves and for that I think that she's doing a lot of great things she's made some comments and posts about things that that community has not been super thrilled about um, more like specific instances of stuff Mm -hmm. but I think overall her conversation about it and uh, her husband's participation in those conversations are something that at least has very much educated me. I really enjoyed watching Expecting Amy and and watching their relationship and everything. Their love does feel very like genuine. It I watched really their is. show in the pandemic and um, it was cool to see I like seeing Amy Schumer in that they are so gentle with each other and yeah they argue and you know it's a documentary series so you see all the ups and downs and stuff but he is so patient and loving and like just he just seems like the best guy ever and so learning more about him and also having Amy go through that experience and using her platform for something good for that I, I also think is a great thing so while I know that there is good that she has put out into the world. I think it's great that she did bring a somewhat more, I don't want to say feminist spin, but maybe more body positive spin, sex positive spin to Mm -hmm. comedy. Um, And for being part of that initial change. But I wish that she would um, continue to grow more and more, acknowledge the things she's done in the past that are not so great. Um, but as long as I continue to see her making strides to be different, I'm willing to give her chances, you know? Right. Of course. You know, everybody is growing and changing and learning and evolving all the time. Yeah. The only thing for me is you don't get to swoop in, cause chaos and then swoop and out and move on from it without owning up or acknowledging the things that you did wrong you know and I I hope she gets to that place I really do yeah which is why for me like you know I watched the expecting Amy in the recent special and I like it wasn't until doing this research that I like remembered why I disliked her yes, so I, much I that I literally booed her yeah. face like <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I forgot about a lot of that I did yeah so it was a good refresher for me because I knew I knew the reasons generally and I just had to get a refresher I think so many of the jokes that she stole and so many of the things that she said are so unbelievably harmful so had to bring them up yeah yeah all right well I thoroughly enjoyed doing this episode with you I am glad that we did this as our first one back after a bit of a break it was very fun I am super bummed I don't even think we mentioned that we're recording remotely or not but I was having some car trouble so Keegan I'm missing you like crazy still but I'll see you in a few days (laughs) it's been so long like it's been several weeks I have a whole new um like board now (gasps) like soundboard and everything Merry Christmas to us use it yet so 
yeah, it's definitely a bummer, but we'll see each other later this week. Yes, we will. Um, I do want to remind everybody that we still have the holiday merch up through the end of the month. So at this point, of course, it would be for maybe next holiday season, but still might be nice if you wanted to get in on that design. Uh, After the end of the month, we will be taking it down, but all the rest of our merch will still be up. I got a really cute rage on sticker that's on the back of my laptop right now love it. that I love so uh, go check that out it's on the it's in the link in our bio on Instagram at angry neighborhood feminist it's difficult so many words so many syllables um, so yeah you can also follow us on Instagram at angry neighborhood feminist and direct message us there uh, we love to hear your topic suggestions for episodes so you can direct message us there or email us at neighborhood feminist at gmail.com we have a Facebook business and group page you can rate and review us on the business page and chat with the fellow listeners on the group page. And last but certainly not least, if you haven't done so already, we would greatly appreciate it if you would leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts with a quick sentence about why you enjoyed the show. We know you love us so much, so if you want to support us, that truly is the best way to do so, and we really, really appreciate seeing those new reviews. All right, that's all we got for you today. With all of that being said, we encourage you to to rage on. Bye! Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.